Today's episode is sponsored by Ronin Design and Manufacturing on Broad Avenue. Ronin is excited to announce a free tattoo service for women who've undergone a mastectomy. Every month, they'll be selecting one woman to come in and meet with their professional and experienced staff to discuss and complete a tattoo. If you, a friend, a family member, or a co-worker would like to participate in this program, email them at roninmemphis at gmail.com. That's R-O-N-I-N Memphis at gmail.com. Or contact them on Facebook, facebook.com slash Manufacturing. The OAMnetwork.com. Power to the podcast. One of our previous guests, uh, I had to cut out a piece where he basically on mic admitted to tax fraud. <laughs> oh <my God. laughs> that's fabulous. Oh, that's like, great. I can't, I can't use that. <laughs> <laughs> that's terrible. Uh, so, my, so my son said something today that you would be amused at. Yeah? He's invented a new word. Yeah, what's that? Grumpin. Grumpin. It is uh, when you're hungry and grumpy, you're grumpin. I, I, I love. he lo- says, Mom, I'm grumpin. <laughs> <laughs> you're hilarious. It sounds Grumpin. sounds pretty Memphis. I was gonna say it sounds yeah. very Memphis. I was like you are a Memphian. Yeah, right. What's wrong with you? I'm grumping. <laughs> you gonna help me fix it or not? <laughs> right. Feed me. Feed me. God, how old is he now? He just turned four. Jesus. Yeah, uh, yeah he does not have the voice you're uh, doing. <laughs> <laughs> right. I'm grumping. That's not it either. <laughs> Welcome to Doctor Heckle the science communication podcast that will take you to the candy shop and let you lick the lollipop. Go ahead, girl, don't you stop. Keep going till you hit the spot. Whoa. On today's episode, how influenza affects cell metabolism, the publish or perish debate, and the fastest red card in a small English town. Welcome to the Dr. Heckle podcast, the science communication show that is just on the same amount of verge of falling apart as Neymar Jr.'s poor little body. Now with me on the show today, with a PhD in biochemistry from Washington State University, Assistant Professor at University of Tennessee Health Science Center, Heather Smallwood. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for being here. I'm happy to be here. (laughs) And with a diploma from Home Life Academy. No, that was Brennan. (laughs) I never oh, got. Uh, no. I never. I didn't get. I didn't get. My, I got my GED. No, leave it in. Leave it in. I got my GED after I finished. Uh, after I finished senior year, Brendan's the one who got his home life. Man, it's all right. With You've done a of these. Yeah, With the GED comedian Josh McLean. Welcome. Yeah, to the show. buddy. Thanks for having me back, man. This is an absolute honor. So, uh, so Josh. Uh, it's time for you to tell us what you've done with that GED. Since we last spoke, you've had uh, a little bit of a little bit of news. Uh, yeah, I, uh, uh, my friend and I, Eric Huber, my production partner, and I just released the. Uh uh, com- it feels weird saying comedy special because we made it ourselves. Like it almost feels like someone else has to say that. Does that make any sense? Like a label has to make it or Comedy Central has to make it for it to be special. But that's what we did. We shot uh, when I recorded my record. Don't be afraid of the dark. A couple years ago, we filmed it and then it spent. We it sat on a shelf for a year and then Eric dusted it off and started editing it and turned it into something really, really awesome. And now it's on Amazon. Yeah, that's great. It's pretty, pretty rad. It's pretty, it's surreal to say the least. Let me put it that way. (laughs) Kara made me watch it like when it came out at midnight. She goes, Oh, we're getting a click on this. I was like, I don't want to. Oh, that's, I'm vain enough. Let's watch this. (laughs) This is edited well. It's not the set at all. Fantastic. A special ed. Yeah. Yeah. 100%. (laughs) Oh, man. It was great. uh, It was great because as my, 
my wife is one of is easily the smartest one of the smartest people I've ever met in my life. She still falls trapped to the whole like we're listening to a spot, and I was like, oh wow, that got left in. She goes, shh, 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 you're talking about me. Quiet in the special. <laughs> she say, like, back it up. You're talking about me. I want to hear. That's great. I was like, you were there. I don't care. It's on Amazon. I uh, I actually I watched it yesterday in preparation uh, for today, today's show, and uh, like I was saying to you before we uh, got on mic, I couldn't judge it objectively because I just enjoyed seeing you up there so much. But one thing I think was very prophetic, it was shot in November 2015, mm-hmm. and you were talking about Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton a lot and saying how screwed we all were. So that, yeah, that, was, nice, that was a little weird. It's a nice little timestamp. It, it might seem, you know... Uh, overplayed it's mm-hmm. obviously overplayed by this point but it's it's nice to see that you were at least talking about it a year and a half before yeah, it was because it, it was plenty terrifying then when you live with <laughs> when you live with someone who's who's like i hate to use a term woke, but when you live with somebody who pays attention like my wife and stuff you know really like like that's the worst part about being married to somebody as smart as she is it's like i used to love being an ostrich and just going, oh, I have band and comedy. I really don't have to pay like real. You don't. You don't notice it until everybody else does. And then when you start paying attention to stuff, you see the signs way, way early, and it's, <laughs> it is terrifying. Well, well, I'll tell you what. Uh, Hunter should have the uh, the promo clip up there. And I think Hunter Sandlin. We're going to play that. Yes, producer, comedian, of the ex- show. Pr- producer, comedian extraordinaire. <laughs> I love him. And uh, could we get that up for for Josh let's right now? Let's face it, ladies and gentlemen. Memphis is like a bomb threat away from being Gotham City. And no, no matter how much we pray, no matter how hard we try, Justin Timberlake will never be Batman. (laughs) I want to know what that was in reference to. I've forgotten. Uh, It'll, uh... Imagine that. Imagine having a Batman that could dance. The Bat Dance. It's a it's a reverence of like if anybody. I used to have this longer bit that was about what would anybody actually try and be Batman. When there's when the one percent has so much money, arguably somebody who's young and in shape like a Justin Timberlake could ostensibly be a Batman in a to a certain degree or another. And and he's the closest thing to a Bruce Wayne we'd have here. And and I just love the idea, and I love the mental image in my head of, like, Timberlake getting off stage at, like, the forum while he's in town and strapping on some suit and kicking the shit out of people. But he can dance, so it's all in rhythm. It's it's in sync. There it is. There it is. That's why you get a professional. But, yeah, and it was... And then, and it was it was and it was something that would be like a local. It was just a like a like who the hell. It all started from like who the hell could save Memphis, and it's like you know if we go by the route of pop culture, it would be Justin Timberlake, which I can think of way worse things in life. To be perfectly honest, I don't know. It's not the worst future, is it? Right, <laughs> especially considering the one we're living in right this second. It's it's definitely a it's definitely an idea. That's great, and so that's available on yep. Amazon Prime. Amazon Prime, yes sir. And search. Don't be afraid of yep. the dark. Yes sir. Yes sir. Now, uh, Heather, you haven't produced a comedy special. <laughs> I have not. But uh, you have produced arguably something <laughs> of at least equal value. Oh, way, way more so. No, I'll be the first to say that. <laughs> to society. Yeah, you are an assistant professor at University of Tennessee. Yes. Uh, so first of all, I would like to ask you uh, what your route was. How did you uh, get into science and how did you, what, uh, what led to you becoming a professor? <clears throat> so I don't actually remember 
not being curious and interested in biology. And I was a tomboy, so I loved all things from fishing, climbing trees, all of these things. So big biology I was very interested in. And I think in about five or six, I had declared to the world that I was going to be a cardiothoracic surgeon. But as I grew and got older, I decided that I was not interested in that. Uh, and sort of, um, I think there are wonderful, amazing surgeons and doctors are amazing. But um, I was interested in a sort of more intellectual uh, pursuit that would be challenging to me on a daily basis. And I worked for a long time for a medical filming company in college where I got to look at medical records. And I sort of decided that people just basically have the same problems um, in terms of physical ailments. And I didn't want to have to see those physical, same physical ailments every day. <laughs> right. Yeah. That, that's what would have yeah. kept me out. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I'm not going to talk about the regions, but they're, they're localized in a few regions. Yeah. And that's typically where they are. So I decided I wanted to go into science, and um, I haven't looked back. That's fantastic. Literally, uh, when I met her, I, uh, uh, I asked what she did and what she was studying, because I was a bartender, and she was just a friend, and she <laughs> spit it out. And like I think about five words, and I was like, I don't understand any of this, but this is so impressive, it's not even funny. So. <laughs> and, uh, and so you, you basically opted away from the medical field, which is more... Uh, more honorable than what I did, which was not achieve the grades. To get into- <laughs> you chose not to receive the grades. I chose it's a, not it's to a- receive the grades required for uh, medical school in the United Kingdom. Um, is it hard? Well, in is retrospect, it- I kind of wish I would have got an MD because I think research is very, very tight right now. And if you have an MD and you do research, you have a leg up on people who just have a PhD like myself. But mm-hmm. I love what I do. So, is it harder to get an MD over uh, across the pond? Well, you were. Uh, like a higher standard? You apply when you're 18 years old. You go straight out of high school. Into oh, gotcha. It. They just put you on the track and... Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. All right. So... Uh, Damn you and your funny books. You can go but you can go back later. You can do a degree and then go, go in. But you're going in at the undergraduate level. Oh, you're going gotcha. in with... Uh, you'll be starting at 21, 22 <laughs> with like 18 a terrible olds, show. Which, <laughs> that sounds like a terrible show. Oh, and some people go back in their 40s and then it's... <laughs> yeah. Then it's an American show. I mean, maybe you'd get the best grades because you'd be the only one not out till <laughs> not doing anything. Well, I mean, if you're if you're if you're at that point and you don't have kids and all, yeah, maybe, maybe. Uh, now, <clears> so so uh, now you're an assistant professor. Give us a, a general overview. We'll go into depth um, later, but a general overview of what your field of study is and why you enjoy that field of study. Well, so broadly, I'm interested in um, respiratory viruses, um, particularly ones that impact um, pediatric patients or children. So influenza, uh, RSV, uh, CMV, these viruses. And um, I'm interested in how they co-opt cellular metabolism in a parasitic way to basically exploit your cells to get them um, to produce more virion, to uh, propagate so that they can then go out and infect someone else. So in general, my lab studies... Uh, metabolic responses to influenza infection and other respiratory viruses. And I'm, I'm interested in repurposing currently available drugs that target metabolism to, um, to use against these types of respiratory viruses. Oh, great. Oh, the repurpose. That's cool. That repurpose idea is like <laughs> genius. It's like instead of let's come up with something new, it's like, no, we got this sitting around. Let's figure out how to make this work. I mean, that, yeah. that seems very, very smart. Well, uh, because presumably if you could find an FDA-approved drug... Mm-hmm. Oh, there's so many less loophole. It, I mean, uh, yeah. lo- hoops to run through. So actually, the drug that is in the paper we'll discuss later, um, they just started a clinical trial in the elderly for treating influenza from that. Oh, fantastic. Freaking cool. I'm trying. 
<laughs> but it's not just it, it, it's not just the world of academic science that you are clearly excelling at. It is uh, in part similar to something I do, which is trying to bring science to the public. Can you tell oh, yeah. us a little bit about the sure, arts? Sure. Art of science. Yeah, so I had this whole community of friends that were into the arts, and I had a community of friends that were scientists. And at some point, um, a close friend of mine, um, Matt Garcia, was wanting to have an uh, <sighs> a, a exhibit that was um, science exposed as art, so putting uh, really visually appearing graphic uh, graf- graphs or uh, microscopy images and these types of things up. And we were all just sitting around over some beer and started discussing. I, um, I, I kind of mentioned, and some other people mentioned, that we should bring more to the table than that, and that's been done elsewhere. Why not have the artists reinterpret the science? So that's kind of how Art of Science was born, and we've had six a- annual exhibits now, and um, we keep moving on with it. And, and it's a great community outreach project because what it, the art... Art is very important in Memphis. In my opinion, art and science are two really sustainable industries for Memphis. And um, I can't talk enough about how important they are to the local community. Um, but by bringing these, these two things together, we can have the science and do some education on the type of research that's done at Le Bonheur, the, um, the hospital itself, and how it imp- improves pe- patients' lives. Um, but then the, when we get super nerdy, we have the artists there who then reinterpret the science and kind of soften it and draw people in and, and get their attention. And so, <laughs> so in, in that way, it, um, it really acts as a sort of medium to convey some of the things that we're doing in the science community here to the public at, in general. And um, so that's been going on for quite some time. We bring in elementary school kids. We try to really um, make it a, a full-on educational uh, program because science advocacy is so important in, in my mind. Uh, things like what you're doing here and Art of Science are important because it'll, it gives the public an appreciation for science, which helps us improve our funding rate, which of course is very important uh, for us. But then also it gets people, uh, it humanizes scientists. You see us sort of dehumanized in TV shows and comic books. We're always evil. Well, what got me into science in the first, I was a, uh, until until I got into high school and uh, my I stopped honestly just caring about school altogether. I was a big science guy and stuff. And it was Mr. Wizard. When I was a little kid, that got me in it because it was just a normal ass old man, you know, hanging out with kids doing science. And I was like, because like you said, the the whole thing, they're all mad scientists or it's yeah. something or or even if it's not, it's a, a even if it's a good guy science, for lack of a better term, it's, they always uh, they can come off so hoity toity. Yeah. And so like, oh, well, I'm not that bright. So what's the point? Yeah. Kind yeah. of a kind of a thing if you don't have it right out the gate. Or if you're not like a, a 10 on the sexy spectrum with your glasses on staring at the microscope, and there's no point in a woman going into science, which is ridiculous. You know? so it's, it's, these so caricatures it's so stupid. It's so stupid. And so people, we need to get out and interact with each other. So, Sorry, so you don't get anyway. this grant. You don't get this grant for the cancer research because you're just, you're, yeah. that skirt is way too low. That's, that's pretty much what that breaks down to. You don't to. have the naughty librarian. <laughs> Let OM help you get the word out on your service, product, or endeavor. Email info at theoamnetwork.com. Welcome back to the Dr. Heckle podcast. We move on to our news item of the week. This one comes from the Chronicle of Higher Education. The title of the article is Publish or Perish? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Embrace it. And then with the subheading, that academic mantra doesn't have to be a threat or a gloomy mandate to live or die under. 
Now, this is uh, talking about the uh, phenomena in academia, which is well known mm -hmm. to its uh, to its subjects. Uh, publish or perish. Either you are publishing research or your ac academic career withers on the vine, mm -hmm. and you may lose an appointment. You're not getting tenure without publishing, right? Without publishing. Uh, well and often. Oh, gotcha. Oh, okay. Or either one grand slam or that, that, what, what have you done for me lately, pretty so much. So I think, yeah, the impact factor has really come into play heavily there. That's what he's talking about uh, when he says well. Yeah. Um, we, we actually have like a matrix that grades different journals that we publish in. And um, depending upon where you're at, they may even assign a value to you as a scientist. Good. That well. is a, ma a mathematical calculation based on how high your impact factor is of your publications. So it's not just publish or perish anymore. It's publish in a great journal or perish, I think. Good. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's becoming much more complex. Now, the, the term itself actually has been around for a while. Uh, in 1932, uh, this guy called Archibald Carey Coolidge, who was professor of history at Harvard College for, uh, and the first director of the Harvard University Library, he basically recorded an altercation between members of this think with Council of Foreign Relations and its directors, and uh, one of the directors angrily said that you know the the, fam uh, the council had to publish or perish mm. basically had to publish this magazine it was supposed to be producing or it, it would it yeah. would die. But but what that basically means in in the modern context as it's ta as, as it is taken is that. An insane amount of pressure is put on academic researchers. So this impact factor that we're talking about, uh, I believe that many of them are calculated on the number of citations that that journal typically gets and uh, for, for each paper that gets in there. So if you get one in an impact factor of 10, there you go. You've got 10 points effectively for mm -hmm. that paper. Right. Yeah, I'm already feeling pressure. So just explaining <laughs> that this. would be that would be. <clears throat> it just sounds like a popularity contest. That, that, to a certain, yeah. The way so, with it being impact, so, like. So that would be that that journal article. You'd expect to get ten citations, uh, and I think it's. I'm not sure what the time limit is. Maybe it varies mm -hmm. for for different different things. Uh, now, what that doesn't take into account is how much fields vary. Uh, so. You know, if you if you're in the field of agriculture, how are you going to publish above uh, one or two mm -hmm. when no one when no one else but like this very small field of research you, is reading your research? Have you always been expected to be an, for lack of a better term, an entertaining writer when you do? Because that's what it seems like that is coming in. When you say impact, it has more to like like I always assumed it was like papers had to be smart and you had to have your facts straight, and that was pretty much it. If it was on some like bleeding edge type shit or something like that, it made it better. You know what I mean? So when you say entertaining, you, meaning I would like say you could impact to more other scientists. Yeah, but I wouldn't describe anyone writing. In well, sense. I mean, how how it's much not does an your Emily Dickinson or Hunter? No, no. But that's my point. Is like how how much does the effect of how well you can write have an effect on the on on where where you're getting put in a in a I journal think, or something like that? I mean, I would rephrase that to how well you can sell your story. Gotcha. Okay. Gotcha. Okay. So that makes some sense. Some people, I think, are better at selling their story. Oh yeah. Okay. That makes um, way more sense. Than other people and it becomes a little bit dangerous i think in the sense that um in addition to pu uh, publish or perish when you also have this impact factor driven culture i think it changes the dynamic from doing science um simply for doing meaningful work oh totally to an in sort of incentivized game and, and when you make that incentive game happen 
then I think that that's where you get into these situations where uh, you increase the likelihood of unethical behavior, and um, in my opinion, and that becomes That opinion is backed up by facts. Uh, there was a study in PLOS One that showed 2% of researchers admit to having fabricated, falsified, or modified data, which would only happen in an environment where it was essential that you yeah. got those uh, publications. Well, it's, well okay, okay, I, that makes sense. I always figure, like, it seems like with that kind of thing with impact, like, you wouldn't stand a chance depending on what your subject matter was in the first place. Like, last time I was here, there was a guy who was uh, trying to change his genomes in his garage. And if that guy wrote a paper with it being just so such a crazy idea, right, that going up against... Uh, what you're going up, you know what I mean? Like, who's going to get the grant money? Right. You know what I mean? Unless, you know, unless that guy is crazy, which he totally was. Holy <laughs> crap, that guy was crazy. Just because it's a, a more interesting, for lack of a better term, you know what I mean? Gotcha. Like like a reality show style right. science instead of like actual factual <laughs> trying to help everybody science. This guy's just trying to make it like he's got lizard feet or some so, dumb shit like that. But you're touching on something really important, too, because in the struggle for funding, which uh, which uh, it's highly, highly competitive if people aren't aware right now, and the funding rates are extremely low. Um, so, and the money's poorly distributed; uh, it's been steadily declining. But I think what what the problem with that uh, that um, you're talking about is you have this crazy guy in a garage doing something, you know. And 200 years ago, those, those crazy guys in the garage were really making uh, major discoveries. And the way it is now, the way that our funding structure works. Um, first of all, the, the amount of time it takes to get grants um, is much longer than uh, how fast technology moves. So you already, you're giving people oh. that have, uh, I'm sorry, much slower than technology moves. Yeah, yeah, so technology is yeah. moving much faster, and only people with a whole lot of money and the good old boy network, the, the senior scientists, the well, well-funded people can have access to that technology. So all the people down that you're t- that you're talking about, the crazy people or the people wanting to do high-risk research or new people getting started, they don't have access to the same technology, so it's not a level playing field in that regard. But then also the way the funding system is set up, because new people like me, for example, and other assistant professors and people just getting started out in their career, we can't take risks. We can't be the crazy person, quote-unquote, in the garage doing in our laboratories doing risky experiments because we have a very finite short amount of time to get funding before we get tenure. And... um, that that drives us to to sort of stop taking some of the major risks and um, and not really going on a limb for ideas. And it also means that our research is is sort of limited to short projects that are have a shorter timeline. Winnable, that, winnable battles. Winnable yeah. battles that are within a grant segment. And some science takes long takes years and years to get to the end point. So you may have a fabulous idea, but it's not necessarily fundable. Um, because of the of the time constraints and other like things. the thing where they're figuring out why those people on that island live longer. Uh, because the the you know what I'm saying with the 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 it all came from that one clan. I'm just calling back to the last episode I was yes. on, but it's that that but that 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 idea takes took forever for them to be able to figure it out. Literally, yeah. literally generations had to pass. Any kind of human longevity yeah. studies are going to take far too long, you know, for you to within one yeah one, one lifetime yeah, yeah yeah funding cycles to uh, God, that's to, t- yeah. The, I never thought about that with the because the way the overlap is on technology right. now is just insane. Right. Yeah, now, and that all moves really quick. Actually, in graduate school, I was Anton Brooks was his name. He was a famous um, person who studied uh, radiation. He worked at Pacific Northwest National Labs, and they started something called. Uh, he was involved in something called the Mega Mouse Study, and they were basically trying to follow generations and generations of um, of, of, of animals and, and to try and understand the impact. But what happened was um, this idea was fabulous, but um, the amount of money that it took, and then also by the time they got to the completion, they were all retiring. 
And so there was no one there to sort of continue the work. So, so it just died with lots, them pretty much. Lo- yeah, there are lots of, um, huh. lots of things that you have to keep in mind in terms of your topics uh, in, in science. And so, uh, Heather, finally, would, uh, where would you say the future, you believe, lies with, uh, with – where do you think the future is going with uh, the publish or perish narrative, or where, and where do you think it should go? Oh, boy. You could, you could write a dissertation on those topics. And, um, so I'm not really sure. I think right now we're locked in in terms of this publish or perish culture as well as the, the impact factor-related culture um, with that. Um, I'm hoping that over time uh, something will be done about it. It seems to me that um, there's a lot of discussion uh, currently about changing that culture and I think that um, that's, that's really important because, uh, unfortunately, in science, we are super analytical, and we've had to do all of this research to come up with the conclusion that the publisher-perish culture might not be the most productive for science as a whole. I'm not saying it doesn't work for individual scientists, and, you know, I enjoy publishing. I have no problem. I, I think peer review is extremely important, and all of these things are really important, but... Um, Sometimes I think some of the things that have been called into question is, is it actually good for science on the whole? Uh, those seem to be two different, different things to me anyway. And we're starting to actually get amass enough data that I think people are being convinced that perhaps that's not the best way. And in terms of what we should do in the future, I'm not sure. I, I think um, obviously I'm an assistant professor. I spend a heck of a lot more time thinking about my particular uh, uh, virus of interest and and host responses than I than I do uh, trying to imagine what I could do to shape the culture of science in the future in terms of public publish or perish, um, but I, I definitely think that um, in terms of helping out the young scientists, I think what's really important is that um, people take the time to actually look at what the person has done um, in addition to um, just the publications. What have they contributed? I think the NIH now in the biosketch has a section where you put in your contributions. So you know that's for for people who are on large pa- large papers and not getting enough credit, or people who run science cores and everything, where you can kind of elaborate and talk about your contributions to science. And um, I think really, um, especially in terms of hiring, um, it's important to to keep those kinds of things in, um, in mind personally. So I think what you've uh, really detailed there is that it's actually it's a very complex issue. Very, it sounds very, freaking like it, yeah. And unlike the title of the article, Publish or Perish, yes, embrace yeah. it, <laughs> op-ed, it which is just forceful. saying it's a good thing. Uh, and unlike the Publish or Perish 1974 episode of Colum- Columbo. Uh, yes, which, 100%. It's uh, one of my favorite episodes. In which a publisher hires a bomb enthusiast to murder a best-selling author of sex, sex novels. Yep. <laughs> Lieutenant Columbo is on the yep. case, which is also a good thing. The actual, uh, the actual topic itself is far more complicated. And for that, we dub the Chronicle of Higher Education... Fake news. Fake news. (laughs) Man, I love Colombo. Just wanted to remind you again that today's episode is brought to you by Ronin Design and Manufacturing on Broad Avenue. Ronin is excited to announce a free tattoo service for women who've undergone a mastectomy. Every month, they'll be selecting one woman to come in and meet with the professional and experienced staff to discuss and complete a tattoo. 
If you, a friend, a family member, or a coworker would like to participate in this program, email them at RoninMemphis at gmail.com. That's R-O-N-I-N Memphis at gmail.com. Or contact them on Facebook, facebook.com slash Ronin Design Manufacturing. The OAMnetwork.com. All original podcasts released weekly in Memphis, Tennessee. Welcome back to a final section where we take a journal article and explain it to our guests. Today's article is from the journal Cell Reports. It's from the Department of Pediatrics from the University of Tennessee. The anchor author is Paul Thomas and the first author is here with us today, Heather Smallwood. The title of the article is Targeting Metabolic Reprogramming by Influenza Infection for Therapeutic Intervention. Now, the usual protocol in this section is I explain the uh, journal paper to my guests, but I cannot think of a greater uh, example of mansplaining if I were to do that today. <laughs> 100%. God, for real. I didn't even think about that. Uh, so I am going to hand over the reins to you, Heather, and what you're going to do uh, in this section is teach me and Josh about... Uh, Josh and I. Yes. I didn't, I didn't go to school for English. I didn't go to school. So one time I'm going to be smarter than him. I had to leap on it like a lemur. Didn't go to school for English. Uh, <laughs> I barely went to school, so. Uh, you're going to teach Josh and I uh, about your uh, work in a way that you think I and this comedian can understand. Uh, do you think you can do that for us? <clears throat> I will take a stab at it. And at the end. Just being honest. And at the, at the end, uh, the two of us will... Uh, work together to try and explain it back to you. So I specifically did not read this article before coming in for recording today. And I read it three times, so we're about <laughs> on the same page. <laughs> we're about on the same level. Okay. So first, the, so it, it's obvious to me, but I should probably mention it, that influenza infection is a, a problem. Of course, it's a worldwide um, epidemic from time to time, and it's a particular problem for children and the elderly and leads to major morbidity and mortality. And that's one of the reasons that I'm interested in looking at it, okay? Um, and what this paper is, is doing, basically, is establishing that influenza infection, <clears throat> when, it, when the influenza infects your respiratory epithelial cells, so those are the cells that are lining up in, up in this area, they, uh, what For those at home, she's pointing at her throat or to upper throat, chest? I, yes, I'm pointing okay. to my lungs, lungs and my bronchiae gotcha. okay. and, and, and the upper nasal passages. Um, so when flu infects those cells, um, it may, basically it co-ops the cell and turns it into a virus-producing factory. And um, <clears throat> one of the observations that I found was that um, it changed the metabolic parameters of those cells uh, dramatically and in a way that was very similar to cancer. So you can think about it in a sense... Um, cancer cells need macromolecules, building blocks to replicate. And um, in the same way, a virus that would like to replicate inside of a cell needs building blocks in order to replicate and to produce viral progeny. And so I observed several similarities between um, metabolic reprogramming, for example, in cancer or metabolic phenotypes in cancer and what was happening uh, in response to influenza infection in respiratory epithelial cells. And so um, we went through and established some of the um, proteins involved and things that turned on and off this metabolic pathway. And once we had a pretty good handle on that and were understanding the ins and outs of 
of the particular um, metabolic signatures, then uh, we did a drug screen, and um, this was done at St. Jude, and St. Jude uh, screens many tumors uh, with many, many thousands of compounds and looks for responses. So um, a friend of mine was working on a tumor that had a very similar metabolic phenotype, and so what I did in, in, what, in what, sh- what shows in this paper is that when we applied these same drugs that, were tailor-made, that are sort of tailor-made for this particular metabolic phenotype, we could adapt some of these drugs that are proven to work in cancer and get them to fight the flu. And what that do- did was um, change the respiratory parameters in mice um, to make them... Um, Less, have less labored breathing. It reduced the number of viruses in the lungs of the mice when we treated with the, uh, the, these drugs. And then um, it basically rescued the mice um, and increased survival rates from about 15% to 60%. So, um, Holy crap. Basically, yeah. That's uh, a substantial amount. It's very promising. Yeah. So um, it, did I... Do a detailed enough explanation, yeah, or would I, you like I, me to get into the nitty gritty? I'm happy I, I, to talk I, I, about the more specifics on how we did that. I think I think what we'll do is we'll we'll give you what we have so far, and then you can go into more detail. Okay, providing great. that we have okay, so cover entry so level bad cells, <laughs> bad cells inside that are in the linings of your lungs. Right, they need more. They need food, for lack of a better term, so they can can grow. And viral progeny is a term I will take to my grave. <laughs> uh, so they can so they can. Propagate and more than and, your next band. Uh, yeah, more than likely. Um, bad, bad cells, I think. Is bad cells. Word. There you go. Bad <laughs> cells to make more bad cells. And so you have figured out that, and if and if what I heard was correctly, that it happens mainly in kids and people like older people, and that would just or uh, overweight. Is so what, so sure, so it will happen in everyone, right? Yeah. yeah. But uh, the the risk the risky populations are those you know kids and um, the elderly, right? Because of mm-hmm. the and so you you Kids figured, have naivete. You're so figuring they have, out how to. They don't have immune memory, and so they're going to be a more vulnerable. Oh, that makes with, okay. Yeah, yeah along okay. with other complications, and then of course the elderly have a host of complications as well. Um, in terms of the metabolic parameters, though, it's not really. If you're saying bad cells, but if if by that you mean infected cells, then I think that you've got a pretty good handle. Gotcha. And you're figuring out a way to repurpose other drugs that already exist to stop them from being able to. Make replicate. more replicate. Thank you. So, um, yeah. So, by putting a metabolic break on it, what we can do is we can hold that virus down so that it, we can slow down the macromolecule production, the building block production, so that the viruses can't assemble and can't um, produce viral progeny and get that cell in a holding pattern. And what that does is it allows, it gives you, we presume, uh, it gives you time for the immune response to kick in. So in oh, okay. this way, this drug is targeting the host to slow down its metabolism. So it's not, it's still a virus producing factory, mm-hmm. but it's not producing as many viruses. We're going to say. A, you're making an effort. Right. Yeah. It's, go, it's, it's not producing. Uh, it's as, a blocker, not a stopper. Virus. It's slowing it down. And then um, your immune response then picks up and is. It's buying to you time, basically, yeah. for lack of a better term. That's, that, that's the current hypothesis. That's awesome. So, so uh, what is the log difference between, let's say, an infected mice infected mouse that's uh you know how many viruses how many virions are being produced in the best uh, in the normal circumstance versus with this drug that's the uh the main thing i guess sorry to get sorry to like no no you're totally fine um so i think you can well one of the things that we showed in the paper was in the mouse lungs you could reduce it by uh, about two logs so so that's that's impressive by day four of infection that's 
and flipping cool. The drug treatment was for a week, so it's not a long term treatment; it's a short term treatment. And I, I, I think I, I like more than any, the idea of you repurposing something else. To get that, like we kind of talked a, a little bit earlier, it was like the idea of since you you wouldn't have to go through so many FDA laws, and right. like it cuts down your, especially when we're talking, you're going back to your the publisher parish thing, like anything you can to cut that timeline down to the less red tape to run through that you can go with, you know, and and I like the idea of. I, I'm always a, more, a big fan of repurposing instead of just creating something else that we need. Like, well, you know what I mean? Like, Novartis did so much work on it. Why shouldn't we be able to use it? Exactly. It use it for something else. Use it at least part of it. You know what I mean? You just scrape off the tea and it's island all and we can just continue <laughs> to use it. Exactly. So, so, uh, so I, I guess I would say, so obviously there are many, many cancer drugs. This specific drug, what is it? Uh, what does it target? What, what is it? So this particular, so um, in the drug screen, we actually had several drug hits that we're looking at. But the one that, um, is, the central one in this paper is a drug called BEZ-235. Um, as I mentioned earlier, it's uh, a clinical trial just started uh, in humans uh, using it prophylactically and as an adjunct therapy to vaccines um, in elderly pop- population. So we're very excited about that. But um, this drug tar- targets um, PI3K and mTOR pathways, which are um, pathways that are um, very promiscuous and very important in um, programming metabolism in general. Um, and so, um, so this drug is a dual um, dual PI3K uh, mTOR inhibitor. So rather than being, you know, it's rather than like a chemotherapy drug where you would lose your hair and everything, this mm-hmm. is basically targeting, as as you said, metabolic pathways. Mm-hmm. And uh, I guess, are there any known side effects? I was about to say, does that lessen side effects at being a metabolic? So it's been used in combination therapies as a a synergistic treatment in cancer. But um, to my knowledge, there have not been any studies in um, otherwise healthy people. And so the Mm -hmm. current clinical trial that just began will be addressing that in healthy healthy elderly population oh. and I'm I we have a lot of in so in the in the paper one of the things I didn't mention was that um, this highly metabolic rate that cancer cells have um, we also visualize that in patients um, when during lung infection uh, using PET scans so if you if you're looking to see if someone's responding to a cancer therapy you do a PET scan and you look to see this FDG uptake in the lungs and it's a tracer, and it, it lights up when there's high metabolic activity. And in children, actually, um, at St. Jude, we saw that when they had respiratory viral infections, they lit up with that, um, with uh, indicating that it was highly glycolytic, high, high rates of metabolism in there. So when we went, when I went back and started looking at the different pathways that I kind of glossed over to, in a and mercy to you, Josh. Um, I love you. <laughs> The, the pathways that were impacted seemed to be fairly universal. They were occurring in human cells, and they were also occurring in um, cell lines, mice cells, um, and this PI3K mTOR ha- uh, pathway, as well as a transcription factor called CMIC that is important in, in many cancers. We're, um, we're all um, abhorrently regulated or turned on by the flu in different ways, and this drug seems to dampen some of it. Not all of it, but it, it reverses a lot of those effects. Something. So it's interesting. That, and as fun. you have tattooed on you, even if it's nothing, it's something. <laughs> You're making an effort. I'm Everybody's down with that. Do well, uh, Josh, if if, uh, if I'm, I'm going to blow your mind one last time, yeah, so baby. You, you said that it could be, you know, uh, applicable to a huge number of people. Mm-hmm. Well, the the number of people in the 2014 2015 flu season that died in the U.S. that year uh, was 56,000. 
Holy now, if you crap. think about if you think about it, in the elderly, that's going to be the majority of oh the, yeah, definitely that population. So actually, even though you might not necessarily think of it in the same way that you think of other diseases, for instance, uh, certain types of cancer, mm. which are which are so uh, vividly horrible that you uh, don't necessarily realize their incidence is much much lower. This does have the potential. Yeah. To reach a far greater population huh. of people. And I don't know if we learned anything from the last election. Maybe they don't need to feel that much better if they're old. <laughs> I had to get you one. Know. I had to get one blue joke in the entire you, show. You. I have watched my mouth this entire episode. You're gonna be old soon. Uh, oh yeah, and I I, I I I don't need to be driving. And numbers- I don't think I should vote or drive anymore once I get past eighty. I'm sorry. Eighty? Are we really gonna wait that long? I think. <laughs> <laughs> All right, forty-five. Let's be honest. Yes. Also, I think those numbers are pretty underrepresented because um, they don't take into account secondary infections and other things that influenza causes. So, oh, yeah. So pneumonia is a big problem, um, particularly with the elderly and with children. But um, a, primary infection with, a, a primary infection with influenza often leads to a deadly secondary infection or um, your mortality um, following a big bout with influenza is a substantially increased risk huh. factor. So anyway. Perfectly. I, th- I think you summed Well up. done. Yeah, I understood 90% of that. It's only <laughs> when I you got the... Did you too good of a job? I can get really technical. No, 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 it's fine. You, you saved the three... There weren't that many three-syllable words, so welcome, we're, we're fine. Welcome, welcome to the new host of... The- yeah, yeah, right. You better watch out, bud. <laughs> the Dr. Heckle podcast. Uh, and speaking of which, because you, uh, um, because you were the one to explain... It is you that must request the facts oh, from yes. us. May, may I have the facts of the day, gentlemen? <laughs> Uh, Josh, do you have a fact? I have a fact. Did you know that bananas are radioactive? (laughs) I did not. Bananas contain potassium, and since potassium decays, that makes them slightly radioactive no matter how long it goes. But it's nothing you need to worry about. You have to eat 10 million bananas at one time (laughs) to eat to die from radiation poisoning. I just love that, like, you hear, I I love when words come in order that just kind of, like, blow your brain right out the gate. Bananas are radioactive. That is a Fox News headline, is what that is. Especially when at the bottom you say, it's okay, though. It's okay. You have to eat 10 million in one sitting. And uh, John Bonham, didn't he try to eat 11 and he couldn't go on stage? Yep. (laughs) Yep. So I think everyone's safe. I think you're fine. I think you're fine. God, I couldn't imagine just trying to eat like 20 bananas in like a single sitting sounds. I mean, you can't even drink a gallon of milk. So, Ugh. Uh, yeah. All right, Rockstar, you. what's yours? Tell me, what's, what's your fact what's of the mine? day? Uh, so the fastest a football player has ever been sent off. Meaning, what does sent off mean? Uh, soccer, soccer player, getting a red, yeah, yeah. red card. Red card, okay, that's what you mean by sent they're, off, gotcha. Off the pitch. No replacement. Their team goes down to 10. Pitch is soccer? I always thought pitch was cricket. Interesting. Pitch, pitch is everything. Got, oh, oh, okay. Gotcha. <laughs> uh, taking you down to 10 men was two seconds. But Wait, what? Two seconds into the game. Is it one of those where they, they like the, the whistle went and he just walked and kicked the ref straight in the nuts? Uh, what happened? It was a slide tackle straight from the kickoff. Slid, slid and took the guy, both the guy's legs out. Sent off. <laughs> but what is most impressive about that is that happened... At my hometown's pitch in <laughs> my small town in England, it was done against Bashley FC. Oh man, that's great! <laughs> Made the national news. Oh, I love that. Less than two. I mean, just beep, boom out. That is pretty much that how was, that yeah. went down. The red card was amazing. Dedication. Oh yeah, right. It's it's that almost seems like a, a, a something like out of a, a Disney movie or a bat where it's like the rogue sports team was like, all right, these guys are gonna 
trample us. You know what we're going to do to get ahead of them, get in their heads? Right out the gate, you scissor kick that asshole right in the face. You'll be out for the rest of the game, but will they'll think we'll be up to anything. Oh, that's great. That's a good fact, buddy. That was a good fact. Thanks, man. I couldn't do science. It, was, it wouldn't, wouldn't have been becoming of me in this position. No, I understand. I understand, especially this time of year. Yeah. You know what I mean? With it being World Cup and all that. Oh, I, know, yeah. I know what's really going on in your brain right now. It's fine. Uh, it's like I've, I'm not going to lie. I was surprised you didn't move. Like we had when I went out, because it's still going on, isn't it? It's still going. It's still on. Yeah, I honestly thought we were going to end up having to move the the thing when I saw the timing of it because I know <laughs> I know how you I know how your Brits are. Oh, I've been following every single game, every single game. In fact, actually, my my boss saw me watching it on a tiny laptop at work, and he was like, "Oh, come on!" And he oh, I took, took, <laughs> took me into his office to put it up on the big screen. <laughs> nice. I love slow mo re, uh, replays in soccer because it's either it's only one of two ways. It's either one of the most amazing athletic feats you've ever seen in your life or like a guy doing backflip, barely hitting it and barely goes the goal. Or it's almost always somebody trying to hurt somebody else missing and the other guy playing it up to an insane amount. And I watch oh, wrestling, yeah. so I know all about that. Where a dude just kind of sideswipes a dude and the other guy grabs the other foot. Neymar, going, he heard Neymar me. we're talking about you, Neymar. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Called out. <laughs> but uh but that brings us to the end of the show i'm Fantastic. sorry sorry it has to end uh and as always i uh i'm gonna ask you if you have anything to plug anything you've got going on uh i have uh the special don't be afraid of the dark that is available on amazon now uh you can listen to my podcast don't be afraid of the dark by the same name but more importantly uh you should listen to my band heels because uh, i may be an okay comedian but we are a kick-ass band <laughs> and we will make your life better. Uh, I have two very smart people at a table with me that actually enjoy my band. Yes, and you do. they're literally two of the smartest Indeed. people I know. And so that's enough for me. That's enough for me to get it. And uh, so that's, 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 yeah, that's, that's what I got. That's, that's, that's plenty. What about you, Doc? Well, if there are any independent billionaires out there that would like to fund my research, Justin Timberlake, just, uh, call me. No problem. Um, <laughs> Go, go on my webpage, my faculty webpage. But beyond that... Um, Is I there a like Tinder to... page for science? No, you're... And I don't mean gross. No, I don't mean gross. I mean like a... I mean like like in, down the road we were, t- we were talking about... We were talking about like you having to pitch your stuff and all that kind of stuff. Right. What if there... And I, I don't mean like Tinder like gross sex stuff. I mean like there's a science app for like like people to scroll... What am I going to give money to? Ah, I don't want that. Finding, I don't want that. Finding Daddy Warbucks. Finding... Yes, yeah, there's something to that extent. Something to that extent. Well, you can call it that and I'll yeah. go on there with you. But what I would on a more practical note though... Um, Art of Science is something we've been doing for several years here, and um, uh, you can look it up on Facebook, Art of Science Memphis, and uh, keep an eye out if you're an artist for our call to artists. We have an open public call for artists, and then everyone else like us, and then uh, come to the exhibit. The exhibits typically last about a month, and um, we're really excited. It's a family-friendly event, so uh, we'd love to bring you out uh, or to have you come out and take a look at the science and the art that uh, Fantastic. I've been three years, last three years. They're all good, but I've been I've not worked last three. <laughs> I'll make sure. I'll definitely make sure I'm there for the next one. It's and, definitely uh, worth your time. Maybe maybe this, maybe this time you can get Josh McLean. Oh, I, no! Artist, what I want now, artist I want, in residence. I want her to set up her your booth for what you're doing here. Now that I have a basic idea of it, I'm going to write five minutes of stand up that would go with the influenza. Oh, I would totally do that and throw some fi- so throw some facts <laughs> on there. Have to do it again. And the again three and again. syllables. Yeah, like I, the show starts in ten minutes. Guys, gather around. Mm-hmm. Perfect. Well, well, we'll get working on that. But that is the end of the show for today. Thank so you. Thank you. Josh thank McClain. you, sir. Thank you, Heather Smallwood, thanks for coming for on the me. show. Thanks for having me. I enjoyed it. And thank you for listening. 
Good night. This is not NPR. <laughs> Dr. Eccles, an OAM Network production recorded at the Crosstown Concourse in Memphis, Tennessee. Your host was Mark Brimble. Guests were Heather Smallwood and Josh McLean. The show was produced by Mark Brimble, Gil Worth, and Hunter Sandlin. Special thanks to John Miller and Carla Worth. If you have any questions, comments, or would like to get in touch about appearing on the show or topics you'd like us to cover, email us at drhecklepod at gmail.com. <laughs>